Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of Genesis. Let's jump in here. Genesis chapter 4. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. Lord, we thank you for our time together this evening. We thank you, Lord, that we can be called children of God, that we are part of the body of Christ. Now, Lord, we look to your word, which you exalt above your own name. And uh, Lord, it's our desire to learn to be transformed here tonight by the power of your spirit through the teaching of your word. And so may it be your words, not mine. May you pierce our hearts here tonight, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so to bring us back up to speed here, we are in Genesis chapter 4, and in chapter 4, we're going to read a good bit about Cain. We're going to be heavy on the front end, and then uh, through the middle part of the chapter, we're going to move fairly quick through that, and so we'll consider the entirety of it here tonight, but much of it is is narrative that certainly we could spend some time on and consider, but I really want us to focus in on what we read here at the beginning of chapter 4. Now, to bring us back up from a context perspective, remember uh, the week before last, we were in chapter 3. Chapters 1, chapters 2, things are good. Awesome things are happening. We have the account of creation. We have God with a word speaking things into existence and declaring that it is good. And then we come into chapter 3, and quite frankly, chapter 3 is pretty depressing. Man falls into sin, and we now, being of Adam, are the recipients of this sin. We're born ourselves into sin. We know that because you don't need to teach anybody how to sin, right? It's there from day one. We know what we want. We want our desires met. It's evident in our lives from the very beginning, and we have, for lack of a better term, we have Adam and Eve to blame. But it's not about passing the blame game. It's about understanding that God made a way. Even in our sinfulness, God had redemption in sight. And he gave us his son, Jesus Christ, who has died for us and redeemed us and given us a promise of eternal life. And the fact is, what God has in store for us, though he declared creation good, what he has in store for us is even better. So whatever you see in the beginning of creation, whatever you may imagine there in the Garden of Eden, how perfect things may have been, you can look forward to something that God has redeemed and made even better, okay? So that should be exciting to us. Nevertheless, as we read through chapter 3, it is a little bit discouraging. I mean, here, if we really consider more than just a Bible story, more than just something you may have been taught from when you were young, that if you really consider the truth of Scripture, you look at this and you think, man, hear how mankind fell into sin. Why? Because because they idolized themselves, because they wanted to serve themselves, because they chose not to surrender themselves to the word of God, to bring themselves under the authority of God, to worship him for who he truly is, to be able to remain in that right relationship with God. That's sad. It should be sad to us. Nevertheless, here towards the end of the chapter where we finished off last time, we see that though God expels them from the garden, though he sends them away, this is not, this is not a God who is angry. This is not a God who is vengeful. This is a God who cares for not only them, but all of his creation. For if he were to allow them to remain in the garden in their sinful state, continuing to eat of the tree of life, man would have remained in that sinful state less than what God has intended them to be. And so it's God in his mercy and as a good father in his protection over his children. He says, you can't remain here. 
And so he does send them away. And yes, there are consequences for their sin. Nevertheless, even there at the entrance to the garden, though some people look at that and they say, see, there's the cherubim and the flaming sword and all that is is fear. We understood and considered last time that the cherubim themselves were intended to designate the presence of God. These were different kinds of angels and the cherubim have always been used to signify the presence of the Lord, meaning that even in their expulsion from the garden, God has continued to say, I have a plan for you and I'm not leaving you. I'm not forsaking you. I'm not telling you that you can't ever be near me again. In fact, I want to continue to meet with you. And so he creates there at the entrance of the garden a place to meet with man, regularly to meet with them and for them to be in his presence. God makes provision for them and a way to continue to be together because ultimately we are created to spend time in his presence. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been created to spend time in the presence of God. Isn't that incredible? And we do that because of Jesus Christ. We know that today and we're grateful for that and that's why we sing, that's why we sing praises. Because we want to praise the one who has given us life and, and who wants to be with us and meet with us. Nevertheless, it's been a long process to get to that point. God was involved in that process all along, but as we read through Scripture and as we'll continue here in chapter 4, we see that you know, things, it took time. And sin, sin is rebellion, and, and sin was clearly in the world here as we consider the account of Cain and Abel. But within this, we don't only read about an account of, of sin and, and the first example of murder in the history of the world. But we also see a wonderful picture here of what right worship looks like. And so let's consider that here now as we read in chapter 4 and verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. And then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now, Cain and Abel, they're not twins. They were born at separate times. Cain's name means gotten or acquired. And so Eve is excited here as she says, uh, she says, I've acquired a man from the Lord. This shows here that Eve, though initially in her rebellion, fell into sin, uh, committed sin. It doesn't mean that she no longer believes in God. Uh, in fact, she is surrendered to God here. She's desiring still to live a life and give God praise for the fact that uh, here what, what has been promised is a, a child. And then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel means breath, or it can also be translated nothing or vapor. Let's make sense of that. She's not suggesting here that this child is nothing, but rather it seems maybe, and this is speculation, but by this point, maybe she's getting a sense of the impact of sin on the world, the impact of the fall, the, th the fact that now death has entered the world, and maybe there's a realization to her now that with Abel, that even though they live for a long time still at this point, that there's a, a temporariness to life. We don't know exactly what motivated this name. But as we will see with these two, the first offspring here into the world, Cain and Abel, they would be such a picture of the dichotomy of humanity, a picture of good and evil. Now it says here that Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. 
Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. Now, here we see the act of sacrifice apart from the animals in the garden. Remember when Adam and Eve were clothed there in the garden as they were naked and covered in fig leaves and in the bushes and God covered them. That's the first sacrifice. I believe that. I think that God took two innocent animals in that moment. He sacrificed them. It was before Adam and Eve. They had to endure that. They had to see that. And they had to understand at that moment, blood must be shed for the atoning of their sins. And, and now this is the first time that we've really seen this sacrifice occur, this act of worship. And we don't know for sure, but it appears that at some point this was instructed. Now perhaps this was taught to Cain and Abel based on Adam and Eve's experience in the garden. The point here is that this does not seem to be a spontaneous act of sacrifice and worship, but something that they were accustomed to, something that they had planned for as evidenced by the fact that both of them do it. If we had just only the account of Abel here, if it was just Abel who brought a sacrifice and, and it was deemed as righteous and accepted by God, I could maybe understand that somehow so moved in his heart, Abel thought, I'm going to give God something when we meet with him. But the fact that we see Cain and Abel both bring an offering, both bring a sacrifice, and that clearly there's a difference between the two offerings that they bring, it suggests to us that this was something they knew that they needed to do. So Cain... Being a farmer, one who raises crops, produce, he brings of his crop. And Abel, who's a shepherd, uh, he brings of his flock. Now, where did they bring it? Scripture doesn't tell us, but we can only assume to the place that God had designated for his presence to meet with them there outside of the garden, where he continued to presumably meet with them. And they bring their offering to God. And as we see here, their offerings were not received equally. We read, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering, and verse 5, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Now, at first reading, this may seem a bit odd to us. Here are these two young men, each bring of their livelihood and offer it to the Lord, yet one is received and the other is not. Why? This is one of the main things that I believe we need to understand here in chapter 4. We need to answer this question first. What is the practice of bringing an offering or sacrifice to the Lord for? Do we really know that? Do we understand that? Sometimes we can just sort of become accustomed to it because we read about it in Scripture, but, but what is it about? Even in, even in our understanding today, in our, in our language today, what would an offering be? What would a sacrifice be? Is it a tax upon them of sorts? Is it that they owe Him something, that they're bringing something to God? Is it to appease an angry God? Is it a way for them to find favor? What is a sacrifice? Now, literally, in this case, you might say that it is the act of slaughtering an animal or making an offering to God. But that misses the point. What sacrifice is truly defined as is, and listen, the act of giving up something valued for the sake of something else regarded as more important or worthy. I'm going to say that for you again. Sacrifice is the act of giving up something valued for the sake of something else that is regarded as more important or worthy. You see, sacrifice 
is worship. And worship is sacrifice. The two go hand in hand. Folks, we were created for worship. Do you understand that? We were created for worship. Now, is worship part of what we just did here uh, before we, we began studying the Word? Yes, that's praise and worship, but it's not just about that. Saying that we are created for worship doesn't simply mean that we were created to sing along with a, another group of people. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. It says, he has put eternity in their hearts. He has put eternity in your heart. God has put in our hearts a desire for more, an awareness of something beyond us, something that's bigger than us. Countless people testify to the fact, especially before they come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, that they just knew there had to be something bigger than them. A.W. Tozer says that we are saved to worship God. And this is true. We exist to glorify Him. As image bearers of God, images that are marred by sin, because of the grace and the mercy and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that image begins to be restored. And as we go through the process of sanctification, being made more and more like Him, we are intended to, to show His glory, to bring glory to Him. So what does this have to do with Cain and Abel? Well, this is an account, as I alluded to earlier, of right and wrong worship. Or should I say, right and wrong hearts in worship. Pastor Britt Merrick in his book, Big God, writes, Worship is only authentic when the heart is authentic. When your heart is truly yielded to, subsumed by, and consumed with God and His glory. Worship is only authentic when the heart is authentic. So even situations like in praise and worship, we are to evaluate when we're singing these songs, where's your heart? Where's your heart in that? I'd venture to say more often than not that our time of singing before or after a service, and maybe that's unfair, but more often than not, I think it's a routine. That's not with everybody, nor is that necessarily the fault of the praise team, but it's an issue of our hearts. It's an issue of our, of our focus. How distracted are we? What are the other things that you're thinking about? I don't know about you guys, but for me, from the time that I was saved, and especially early on as I was walking with the Lord, I found myself asking, asking my pastor on a regular basis, I'm just so distracted in worship. I don't know how to focus. Here we are, we're supposed to be singing, I'm supposed to be singing praises to God, and I see other people in the room, and they got their hands held up, and they're doing, you know, they're, they seem like they're really into it, and I'm thinking, what am I going to do this weekend? When am I going to mow the lawn? All these other things start coming in my mind, just basic things, silly things. And I think, oh, gosh, focus. And I learned after a while that so many people felt that same way. I get so distracted. And then, of course, there's, I mean, it goes beyond that. Sometimes it's not just about distraction, but it really goes into this area of I don't like singing. I don't like this part. When does worship typically end? They typically do three songs, maybe about five songs a piece, or five minutes a piece. Church starts at 9 a.m. I can roll in about 9.14. We'll be just good, right? We laugh because it's true. It's an amazing thing how bladders just explode during worship. Man, the people have to go to the bathroom when we're singing. Now everybody's going to be like, darn. 
That's not me, but I'll never be able to go to the bathroom again <laughs> during worship, right? Listen, it's okay. If you got to go, you got to go, okay? All these different things can come in, and that's just in their time of singing. But if that's part of our worship, if that's our opportunity to say, I serve a risen God, that the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is within me, it's given me life, it's given me access to the throne room of heaven, I can't see it, I don't know entirely what it looks like, but I know it's there, and that when I praise Him, and when I pray to Him, I'm there before Him, sitting at His feet. I get the chance to communicate with the triune God, praying in the Spirit to the God of the universe on the merits of Jesus Christ. What an incredible privilege this is. And so when I have the time to sing, even if I don't like that particular song, man, it's an opportunity just for everybody to disappear and for me to cry out and say, God, thank you for who you are. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Thank you, Lord, for changing my life. A.W. Tozer says this of the individual who doesn't like to participate in praise and worship, that they show themselves to not yet be ready for heaven. It's an issue of the heart. And it's not just about singing. Our heart fuels our worship. Now, the question could be asked, how do we know Cain and Abel's heart in this account? Well, we don't. But God does. And he tells us. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, the great hall of faith, the very first example, by the way, that he gives us is about Abel. And the author of Hebrews writes in verse 4, By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. Here in Hebrews, the author helps us to see that in the Genesis account, the sacrifice of Abel was more excellent than the sacrifice of Cain. Now that doesn't fully answer our question of how do we know his heart. Well, some translations render the sacrifice as excellent, or better, or acceptable. But the Greek word here is translated more. More. Translated literally, then, Abel offered to God a more sacrifice. Now, what does that mean? At first glance, it would seem that Cain had brought the best of what he had as a farmer. And Abel, a shepherd, it seems reasonable that here each man bring his offering to the Lord of his own livelihood. Yet God does not accept Cain's sacrifice. Why was that? Now, I think it's a couple of things. Now, I have taught before that part of the issue here, in my opinion, was that Cain did not bring an animal sacrifice. And that's a widely held opinion. That like his brother Abel, who really, you could say, is, an, is obedient to a pattern that was set before them to bring a, an animal sacrifice, that Cain's was a lesser sacrifice. Hebrews 9.22 itself declares that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And for Abel, his offer of an animal perhaps pointed to his own faith in the future and the need for atonement. Now that very well may be true. And as I said, I've, I've taught that very thing before. But I think Cain's failure here lied much more in his heart than it did in his practice. Let's for a moment look back at Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. And in the process of time, it says, came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. 
Notice what it says of Cain's offering, that it was an offering of the fruit of the ground. But of Abel's, it was the firstborn of his flock. This is subtle, but it's very different. This is, and the Greek word there was pleion, P-L-E-I-O-N, transliterated, or as I said, more. This is the more sacrifice. Abel gave God the first fruits, the very best of what he had. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 says, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. And here's a wonderful thing, that it doesn't just command that we do that, but it actually gives us the benefit of doing so. As the proverb says, So your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will overflow with new wine. Now this can be hard to do. Giving the first fruits can be very difficult for us to do. To give to God first, to give Him our best, this requires faith as evidenced by Abel, because you have to trust that God is going to take care of you. For Abel, perhaps that was the first calf ever born of his flock. Maybe he didn't know if this was all going to work out. He had worked and worked and to care for his flock, and this was the first one that was born. Of course, we say, yeah, it's the, it's the first fruits. It must have been the firstborn, but maybe this was the first round. Remember, it was with toil now that they had to work They didn't necessarily have the confidence that the things that they were doing were going to have a successful outcome. And maybe Abel is questioning here, if I give God this, will I be able to pay my bills? If I give God the first few hours of my day, won't I be tired? Will I be able to get everything else done that I need to get done? If I give God my best and don't save it for me, what will I get? Will I ever get to enjoy the fruits of my own labor, the things that I deserve? It's not too hard for us to begin to look at different things in our own life and go, man, where am I potentially robbing God of the first fruits? But listen, our Father longs for those who will come and worship Him with complete devotion in obedience to His Word, with an attitude of absolute surrender and dependence on Him. We talked about that this past Sunday in our study of Matthew. The willingness to fully trust in Him, knowing that He's got authority over all things. And yes, He has authority ultimately over your life, but it's a matter of whether or not you're saying, okay, Lord, it's yours. I'll give you that authority. I won't fight against you anymore. I won't resist you anymore. I won't rebel against you anymore. It's all about Him, and it's about worship of Him. Do you realize that? How fitting is it that here in our understanding of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, the first example is of one who rightly understands true worship. That that is the example of faith. The one who knows, I give it all to God. Because you see, faith is born out of one who rightly sees that God is worthy of it all. Consider the centurion from our study in Matthew. The man who said, I am not worthy that you would even come under my roof. But I know that with just a word, Jesus, you can heal. That man understood the authority of Jesus. He understood the significance of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the majesty of Jesus. And Jesus himself says, there's no one in Israel who has faith like that. Faith is born out of one who rightly sees that God is worthy of it all, who, who, one who worships in spirit and in truth. 
And then looking back at Hebrews 11.4 in the latter part of the verse, we then read, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts. True, authentic, and obedient faith is what makes us righteous. Philippians 3.9, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. You remember Adam and Eve in the garden trying to cover themselves. A crude attempt which was just self-righteousness. And God covered them in His righteousness. Yet here still, Cain is just giving God some of what he has. Just some of what he has. He's not taking worship of God seriously. Whereas Abel, he is saying to God, God, you can have my best. I'm trusting and believing that you alone are worthy of it all. And that you will take care of me. And then still today, as Scripture says of Abel, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. His life still speaks. It's still a witness and a testimony to us. Because you see, true worship produces true righteousness, which produces a true witness. Abel's life still speaks, and it's intended to reveal our own hearts and where we are at in our worship of God. And we worship God in a multitude of ways. As we've mentioned, we worship in song. We worship in the study of the Word. We worship Him in prayer. But much of our worship is also about the surrender of our life. Our willingness to give Him our very best through our time, our talents, and our resources. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 challenges us. Therefore, brethren, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Why? This is your spiritual act of what? Worship. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may test and prove what is that good and perfect will of God. You see, our worship ultimately is about saying, God, here's my life. It's yours. I throw all of me on the altar. You can have it all. You're worthy of it all. I'm not going to hang on to any of it. And the question would become for us if people looked at our lives, when they look at our lives, do they see it? If they look at your calendar and how you spend your time, does it communicate worship of God? If they looked at your checkbook, would it communicate worship of God? It's fitting that I would share One, we don't pass the plate here, okay? That's what that little box is at the back. Trust the Lord with it. Can I tell you, I don't even know how to get in that box. Literally don't know where, I don't know how to get in that box. I don't know where the key is. There's a bunch of keys around the building I could try. I don't have access to it. When that offering is counted on Sundays, I'm not in there. I don't see it. I can look every one of you in the eye right now. We could come through one by one, and I can look you in the eye and say, I don't know whether or not you tithe. I don't know, and I don't want to know. What I know is every week what the balances in the bank are and whether we can pay our bills and whether we can give more to missions. And Praise the Lord, we're giving more this year than we did last year and the year before that and the year before that and the year before that. The Lord takes care of us in that way. I don't teach regularly. Some of you have been here for a year now, more. You, you probably haven't heard me teach on tithing, and I'm not going to go off on a rant on tithing tonight, but it's there. And so if I say something like, if somebody looks at your checkbook, do they see that you're worshiping? Because giving is a part of our worship. It is. And that's not my idea. That's what the Bible says. But I can say that to you in good conscience, saying here we are. 
And we've got to deal with that. We've got to evaluate that in our lives. Are we obedient to what Scripture says? Tozer writes this elsewhere. You saw him on a Tozer kit. Millions call themselves by his name. It is true. And pay some token homage to him. But a simple test will show how little he is really honored among them. Let the average man be put to the proof on the question of who or what is above and his true position will be exposed. Let him be forced into making a choice between God and money, between God and men, between God and personal ambition, God and self, God and human love, and God will take second place every time. Those other things will be exalted above. However the man may protest, the proof is in the choice he makes day after day throughout his life. Guys, I can read a passage like that and it gets me because it, it was me. <laughs> Ordained into ministry, called into ministry in 2002, I set off on a course to say, I'm going to serve the Lord. And come 2005, a number of different circumstances prompted that I get an additional job because the $100 a week I was making as a youth pastor just wasn't cutting it. <laughs> I don't think getting the job was the wrong thing. Paul was a tent maker too. He figured out how to pay for his bills. That wasn't wrong. But the 13 years that followed and the ambition that I demonstrated as I pursued the things of this world and coming to a place where I was wrestling with where I was at and wrestling with the call that God had put on my life and coming to the realization that, God, I've begun to worship so many things other than you. Each of us has to evaluate that in our lives. Are we giving God the very best and trusting Him with it our whole lives? Are we giving Him some and hanging on to the rest? Cain, like Adam and Eve in the garden, made self the idol. And he sought to worship it above God. May that not be said of us, but rather may we be a people who say, you alone are worthy, God. And I offer you my best. I offer you my life. Because you see, if we continue in this worship of self, or whatever idol it may be, we just, in the Q&A on Tuesday, for those of you that tuned into the Q&A, we talked about this. We talked about idols. And the fact that so many different things, almost anything in our life can become an idol. It truly can. Family members can become an idol. Kids can become an idol. Spouses can become an idol. So many things can begin to come between you and God and it can become the object of your worship. But if we continue in that, then what we are continuing in is sin. That's what it is. And if we continue in sin, then that means we're willfully disobedient. And we see that with Cain, he went this way. In verse 6, it says, So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? This is the wonderful thing. Here was an opportunity for repentance. God in his mercy was trying to get a hold of Cain's heart. But he says, And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. Here's a warning to Cain. Cain, sin is lying at your door. It's right there. God says, I know your heart. Sin is right there. It's waiting on you. And its desire is for you, which means that it wants to master you. The word there, desire, means just that. The sin wants to master you. It wants to own you. But the challenge is we must master it. And we do so today through the power of the Spirit. We must be victorious over sin, but if we continue in it, sin masters us, and it's waiting right there. And when we continue in unrepentant sin, fear, paranoia, anger, jealousy, all of the opposites of the fruit of the Spirit, 
those of the flesh begin to take over us. And look at what happens with Cain. In verse 8 of Genesis 4, Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother. I can only imagine what this conversation was like. No doubt Abel was trying to encourage Cain. Cain, what are you doing, man? Repent. Get this right. God's given you a chance. And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and he killed him. Sin mastered Cain and overtook him. And then look, just like how his parents before him, he too, Cain, thinks he can get away with it, that God doesn't know his heart. As in verse 9, it says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Now we could stop here and spend a whole other night on accountability (laughs) and our responsibility as brothers and sisters of Christ. But here we say it's no different than Adam and Eve with fig cloths, fig leaves on standing in the bush. I don't, I don't know what happened. It was her, Lord. She did it. Cain, I, wow, who knows? I'm not responsible for him. And so then just as before, there are consequences of sin. And quite frankly, sometimes for generations. Now, am I suggesting that you need to go about repenting of the sins of your fathers because you're being punished for it today? No. The concept of generational sin is absolutely evident in our lives today. But the consequences of those who have gone before us, it affects us. And God says in verse 10, and he said, and this is where we're going to move fairly quickly through this narrative. And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. Now he was going to wander. There would be really no place for him to go and it would be difficult for him to uh, even stop for a period of time and really plant and and grow. And so uh, he was going to be searching for things and a a fugitive, meaning that um, there would be people that were out for his life. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. So there's clearly here fear on the part of Cain. We don't, we don't necessarily have a sense of, of full repentance. I'm not saying there's not. Um, but certainly there's an aspect here of just an awareness of what he's done and fear of what will come upon him. And the Lord says to him in verse 15, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. We don't know what that mark was. In my opinion, it was something more supernatural. Um, that just indicated to people this was a man that they could not touch and should not touch. The fact that God could set a supernatural mark upon someone should not be that far-fetched in this time prior to the flood uh, where God's presence on the earth was known. And then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. And you see there the presence of the Lord. Guys, we're created for worship. We're created by a God who desires for us to be in His presence, spending time with Him. But Cain in his rebellion severed that relationship and he dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. We don't know if that was an actual place or the translation there also speaks to that he was just more of wandering through an unknown land. And Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch and he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. And so here now it seems that Cain begins to try and build. And to Enoch, was this is a different Enoch than what we'll consider later. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad begot Mahujael, and Mahujael begot Methushael. And these are the fun parts of Scripture, right? And Methushael begot Lamech. 
Then Lamech took for himself two wives. This was not allowed Okay, at this time. We see a pattern of sin continuing here. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the second was Zillah. Their names both speak to basically their, their beauty. So it seems here that Lamech just couldn't handle himself and was attracted to both of these women, and so he, he defies what God had ordained. And, and Ada bore Jabel, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the harp and the flute. So you're getting a sense of what they did, right? So you have one who was more of a farmer, another one who was a musician. As for Zillah, she also bore Tubal Cain, like that name, right? Uh, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. This one's figuring out how to use metal to create weapons and, and tools. And the sister of Tubal Cain was Nama. Then Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Uh, Lamech was not a good man. We have insight elsewhere in Scripture as well as extra-biblical texts that suggest that really his wives were maybe entertaining other men, or were attracted to other men who were attracted to them. And it's suggested here that Lamech tells his wives this, this little story so that he puts a little fear in their hearts. Notice here also, I really don't know if this is connected or not, but uh, it's just interesting sometimes that here uh, Lamech mentions of his, of his ancestor here, if Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Sounds kind of similar to something that Jesus mentions later on, right? Forgive how many times? Seventy times, seven times. And so who knows? Uh, there could be roots there in this. But what's really important and again, we could go back and we can consider much of this genealogy. Chapter 5 is, is really all genealogy. And there's some very interesting things that we can find in that. It's scripture. It's inspired by God. It's very important. But for the sake of our study here tonight as we bring this to a close, I want us to look here at verses 25 and 26. What has been the pattern for God all along? He created with foreknowledge, knowing that man would sin. He created anyhow, which indicates that even before his creation, he had already said, I'm going to save them. I'm going to show them mercy. I'm going to demonstrate my grace towards them. Again, so many people want to look at the God of the Old Testament and separate him out and say, oh, man, he's a vengeful God. And listen, there's some passages in the Old Testament we look at it, we go, wow, right? that's difficult for us to wrap our mind around. But listen, this, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And that God is Jesus. He is God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so even before creating, what was in God's mind was, I'll redeem them, I'll save them, I'll restore them. And then there in the, in the fall, in the garden, and they're hiding, and they're in shame, and shame is not of the Lord, shame is never from the Lord, that even there in their sin, and from our perspective, every right to feel ashamed, God says, I'll cover you. And then even in the consequences of sin, God points out, that Eve, there will be one that comes from you that will destroy the serpent, that will liberate man. Okay, he, he continually points to redemption and he points to forgiveness. And now here, one, one son is dead and the other one is cast out from his presence. And what now? And we read in verse 25, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth, saying, For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. And look at this. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. 
You see, from one account, and really, and this is where we could spend some time if we went back and just kind of went through the, the lineage of Cain, and is this is a bunch of proud men who were born from a man who glorified himself, who in wrong worship to God held back the best from God for himself, didn't trust God, didn't in faith truly worship God. He worshiped himself, and that then was born out in his lineage of, of different people who were known for what? Building cities and, 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 and music and, and, and weapons and tools and all this worship of man. It was an entire line that was, a, that was worship of self. But then Seth comes, and it says, with Seth, then men began to call in the name of the Lord. And so you see, even in this, even as we look at these chapters where we go, man, this is just so hard and this is difficult and this is sad, through it all, God continually brings our attention back to, but there's hope, there's forgiveness, there's reconciliation, there's restoration, there's grace, there's mercy. As men began to call on the name of the Lord. Throughout history, there's always been a remnant of men who call upon the name of the Lord, who understand rightly who He is and surrender their lives to Him. And as we have considered in numerous ways over the last several weeks, looking at Scripture and where God has us, which is not by accident, but by the leading of His Holy Spirit, in a culture, in a time when people have for many years now worshipped self, but are coming to a place in, in our world today where the idols, the different things that people have worshipped as we've long considered here over the last several months, the idols are toppling. Every time we turn around, another idol topples another aspect of our worship begins to fall. And I pray they just continue to fall to where we, we begin to see all throughout our country in this world the same things we're seeing happen right now and people are going, man, the things that I've worshipped for so long, they're not worth it. And that men would begin to call on the name of the Lord and we'd return to Him again, amen? Guys, we've got to be mindful of the objects of our worship. We can easily go astray. We can easily begin to replace Jesus with a number of other things on the throne of our hearts. And all it takes is for us to really evaluate, just like toes are challenged. What, what is, just, we talked about this on Tuesday. What is the thing in your life that if God said, I want that, that you wouldn't give it? And, and ask yourself. And for some, it may, be very, it may be a very simple thing. I was with the kids in New Mexico last week, and some of you know this story, and I don't mean to repeat it, but it's just kind of, it's a silly thing, okay? I recognize this. As I say this, that this, is, this was a stupid idol, okay? But it was an idol nonetheless. That, that in my life, when God called me then to say, who, who are you? I mean, God almost audibly said, who are you? What is it that you do? What are you called to do? I was sitting in the chair at Great Clips right over there, across from Sandhills. Some of you may not even know it's there. It's a pivotal point in my life. <laughs> that Great Clips, Great Clips location. <laughs> and I'm sitting there, and the, and the, the person cutting my hair because they do a decent job for 12 bucks. Can't get that anymore these days. And they, said, they say the typical question, right? What do you do? And it's like the world stopped for a moment. She didn't seem to be mindful of it, so it was maybe like one of those superhero slow motion moments, right? That's how I like to think of it. What do you do? What do I do? What am I called to do? And it was in that moment that the Lord just, he, he asked me, he said, Brennan, what do you do? For 13 years, I'd been telling people what I did. And, and I'm not knocking that, right? You guys sitting here right now, you're not, you're not called to be a pastor. You're a believer in Jesus Christ, and he calls you to something, so do it faithfully. For me, he had called me to be a pastor, and you can't repent of that call. You can't repent of any call that God has on your life when you've accepted it. 
We try to, but we fail at it. It was at that moment that I looked up and I said, I'm a pastor. And I knew from that moment on I had to begin to live it out. I had to say, okay, Lord, I'm going to make some changes. And so it was at that moment that we said, here we go, we're doing it, Lord. And we started to just search for all the different ways in which I could step into full-time ministry because that was the longing of my heart. And I believe that God had given me that desire in my heart. And so he said, we got to get ready because the Lord said in that moment, and again, all these times, these were when God was just speaking so clearly. He says, you're not ready. What do you mean, Lord, I'm not ready? I'm ready. I just told you I'm ready. If I call you today, can you go? No, Lord, I can't. So we began to sell everything. Alexis remembers. Mom and dad lost it. What are mom and dad doing? They're selling everything. They did great. The kids did awesome through that time. But we did. We started it. We sold the house. And we, the property up in Michigan that we had bought foolishly, thinking we would get back there, we, we began to work on selling that. Just everything, left and right, except for one thing. <laughs> you guys know what it was? It was my truck. Lord, not that. Please, Lord, let me keep that. But it came down to a place where the Lord said, can I have it? I think I said no once. No, Lord. But that's that moment, right? It's stupid, guys. It's stupid. It's a truck. But it was what the Lord asked of me. And I had to recognize in that moment because I wasn't willing to give it to him. And trust me, there's been a million different idols, okay? I'm trying to make myself out to be so spiritual that the only thing I've ever struggled with was a truck. At the same time, that's pretty fleshly, right? Depends on how you look at it. But it was that thing that I had to go, okay, Lord, you can have it. And then he began to bless. Guys, we've got to be willing to say, Lord, show me. If there's anything that is robbing you of your rightful worship, Lord, show me and help me to let it go. That's where faith is identified. Right? When we, get, we go, okay, Lord, it's yours, and I trust you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, once again for your word. And Lord, do this work in, in each of our lives, Lord. Because, Lord, if we're honest, and, and for me, I, I know that so many different idols can continue to just creep in, Lord. And sometimes, sometimes, Lord, it's just so sneaky. But an idol doesn't tell you when it showed up in your life. And so, Lord, help us to be men and women that just, Lord, seek you with absolute surrender. Lord, willing to say, yes, Lord, here it is. And I love it, and I treasure it, and I want to keep it, or whatever it is that we'd be honest with you, Lord. But we'd say, it's yours. If you want it, Lord, it's yours. And Lord, remind us most of all that what you desire above all else in our lives and what causes all other idols to topple, Lord, is when we just say, Lord, my life, all of it, I throw it on the altar. It's yours. Oh, the army that would be at your disposal, Lord, for, for good in this community, for your glory in this community. And Lord, we taste it. There's times, Lord, when we see glimpses of it, but the enemy comes back in and distracts us. And so, Lord, help us to just be on fire for you. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for the work that you're doing in this, in this church, Lord. Good things, Lord, are happening. And we're grateful, Lord. And I pray for each of these here tonight, Lord, as they follow after you. Lord, may their sight be fixed upon you. Their eyes, Lord, set upon you. Their hearts, Lord, desiring you. May nothing, Lord, get in the way. And as a good shepherd, Lord, as we often pray, good before us, lead and guide us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you would like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.